Our world is lost in unnecessary fear and hurt. Our systems seem scientifically engineered to make you small, powerless, and always waiting for the next great leader who will fix the problems around us. Worse, we're witnessing neighbor versus neighbor while warfare breaks out around our family tables. But you have access to a spirit, a strength that enlarges and empowers you. Even better, you don't need to wait for the next big movement. You can heal the world. It's time for governance by Grace. Welcome to Gracearchy with Jim Babka. So we've got this list here of Jim Palmer's. <laughs> so we'll, we'll we'll try to maybe we can get Jim on this show, you know, to actually uh, speak with us and live about this stuff. But these are 16 people things Jesus never said by the one and only Jim Palmer, who just for the record is a contemporary spiritual teacher and critically acclaimed author by his own admission, who operates nonreligiousspirituality.com, Center for Nonreligious Spirituality. So let's do this. Uh, here's the first one. For God was so repulsed and angered with humankind that he gave his one and only son. Yeah, the, the narrative that a lot of believers have been given is that uh, we are sinners in the hands of an angry God. And there's a tremendous focus on uh, God's rage or outrage at uh, humanity. And why not, and, right? Yeah, and sometimes, basically about a thousand years in, they came up with this, uh, you know, they were discovering law and how to structure due process at, in, in our human evolution a little better in the West. And uh, they came up with this uh, substitutionary uh, atonement where um, you're bad, you're separated from God, you have to die. And that evolves over time into something that people think goes all the way back to the early church, but it it simply doesn't. It's it's basically about a thousand year uh, later innovation uh, that that develops. And it's it's very it's very nice for keeping control uh, over the subjects. Really, and, it and is because they can be scared. Besides the, you know, like the, the pressure play, right? Yeah. Um, is the second statement, which is, I have come to give you a new religion. Oh, my gosh. So, like, <laughs> this is a sub-theme of the show, right? I mean, right? religion is bad. It's awful. Um, religion, you, you can see some of it in, in, in the design of institutions, but essentially every religion is grounded in an initial sacrifice. Um, the idea is to recreate it. It's about blood and sacrifice. And the idea is that we kind of stay there, that the, we're never really out. We got to keep uh, filling it. Keep sacrificing, right? Keep sacrificing. That's exactly right. And the thing that is unique about Jesus is that he basically came, and this is very, very evident. Lots of people know this theologically. They just don't act like it to say, this is the last one. It's all over. I'm not going to put up with this nonsense anymore. End religion. I'm tired of your sacrifices. Here's the last one. I'm offering myself. Stop murdering each other. But this is the, so, every every religion is is grounded in this. This and, and right. they and by the way, because of this, they exalt murder. They exalt further sacrifice and death. Yep. And so uh, you'll see the hero motif of the soldier uh, in, in placed over top of the cross, right? And that is you know he's that, that's your new savior. 
So the, the sacrifice doesn't stop, and that's what religion needs to do. It needs to keep you in a sacrificial mode. It needs you to think that God's angry at you and you have something to atone for. That's the that is it's a business model, is what it is. It's very manipulative. It's normally tied with power. Um, not good. So here's something else Jesus never said. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have the correct theology. I myself have to be careful of this one. I, I because so I have this feeling that because the theology is so bad, normally it's it's sinners in the hands of an angry God instead of God in the hands of angry sinners. That if we could correct people's theology, we would it would go a long way. Um, but that's not quite right. Um, the theology correction has to do with recognizing that you're being called into a relationship with God. And that that was what Jesus came to basically say, hey, look, look at me. Uh, now you can see my father. And who is my father and my father's love? That's really well said. I, I'm taking a moment here because I haven't heard it that clear in a long time, Jim. <laughs> Miracles never cease. <laughs> it has to do with lots of sleep and adequate preparation, right? Yeah, we shouldn't tell everybody my problems. I have to be the no, happy no, one today. Yes. So let's see. Here's another one Jesus never said. <laughs> Insomnia is a bad disease. How's that? And by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to lump Jesus and Muhammad. I'm going to lump everybody else in here that has said this in the past, right? If anyone would come after me, let him disparage all other religions and their followers. <laughs> <laughs> jihad, right? Jihad. Yeah. Okay. So, and, and the term jihad does exist in the Old Testament too. It's, it is, it is uh, usually means in both Islam and Christianity, spiritual warfare. Uh, yep. It is a symbolic uh, fight that we are fighting inside our spirit, uh, a war that we're, we're contending with. And uh, the idea that, that we should murder heretics or infidels is, uh, is completely abhorrent uh, to a, again, to a loving God who is allowing us, obviously, I mean, this should be so obvious to have a journey where we don't come with all the answers and we have to figure this out on ourselves and we do this in kind of a relational fashion. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm laughing here because this is such a great list. Jim, if you're listening, thank you. Because, you know, I don't know how many times. And I can tell you, uh, I used to go to churches where this was said often. If you love me, you will regularly attend an approved Bible teaching church. Yep. So I was, uh, through a set of circumstances, had moved from a couple to a couple of different churches through a couple of different events of, of uh, spiritual abuse and ended up at a very small church where we had a situation that uh, miraculously, stunningly resulted in me becoming the pastor of this tiny church for a short time. And I had a full-time job and a family and it was just a weird, uh, bizarre time. You were good very, at it. Very, very, right? I'm sorry? You were good at it, right? Uh, it was a very, very interesting experience. I mean, really, it's uh, it, life-changing. However, um, a spirit of malice on one part, uh, part of one member and fear on another uh, led to a series of circumstances that were really kind of appalling. And I had to step out. And it was it, it broke me. I was for three years, I was a mess over this. This really, really, really hurt. And the people, I think, who cared, who meant well, 
were extremely concerned about my soul because I wasn't in a Bible believing church. You need to get back to church. Like ignore what happened to you. Just get to church. Stop processing it. Stop belly aching. Get back to church. And and it was all it was it, it <laughs> there was a part of me that wondered in a couple of cases whether the people who were pushing me in that direction were barely holding on themselves. And like they, they the fact that I was able to survive outside of it and begin a completely separate journey. Uh that that you know if that were possible what what does that mean about you know the tenuous hold they had and i never ever wanted to talk anybody out of going to their church so you won't find me in an individual conversation trying to disparage anybody's church i'm, I'm sitting here on the show right now saying some things about religion i have some concerns about the types of churches that are out there and the way that they're teaching but i don't do this with people who say oh i love my church if you love your church stay there like i don't want to mess with you i don't want to see you go through the suffering i went through i'm not willing to impose that on anybody uh I'd rather let nature and time and God, you know, take their own course. But I, it's, uh, it was hard. That was all the way back in 2014. So it's been a long time. I haven't been back. Uh, and I have said to you, we've not talked about this a lot to the audience, that a big part of the people that I have in mind for this show are what I call the duns. These are people who are done with church. And increasingly some of the nuns who are recently deconverted right? They've, they've left because they went to these Bible believing churches and, and, and they missed the word of God. In John one, we're told who the word of God is. It's not a book. It's a person. And he existed before time and he's responsible for your existence and he holds everything together. And he died to bring you to, to, to show you, he took on human form, which is what we just celebrated with Christmas here recently. He died to restore you to him to say, look, you don't have to compete in this system. I've got a place for you. I want you to meet my father. I have actually left churches on this next one where there were amazing pastors who could deliver a message that was erudite and full of emotional hooks and just able to connect with the congregation like nobody should be able to humanly in this world but then they follow it up with this and um, this is the beatitude that doesn't exist everybody <laughs> blessed are the tithers for they shall be called the children of god now i know organization needs money to keep the lights on right and repair the things that fall apart and a lot of these churches are old and you know they need repairs extensive ones in some cases and modernization but <sighs> When it comes down to linking your faith to your wallet, I draw a line. We're not going to do it today, but I really am eager soon to have a conversation about what a church is supposed to be. But let me give a tiny hint and say it's not a building and it's not a business. So so that's, that's step one. Um, if you've created a situation where you have bills... Obviously, you got to have a way to fund those bills. Um, but the hallmark of this new community is that there is no coercion. So I have said on uh, before and that God is a libertarian. And I don't mean this in the crass political sense. One of the problems that libertarians are most concerned about socially in our, in, in, people tend to think that libertarianism is political. It's actually a social philosophy with, with important political implications. 
And the social philosophy says not to use force, not to steal from other people. And stealing is wrong always. And that includes the stealing that comes in the form or the extorted form of taxation. Okay. Taxation is stuffed is the, the bumper sticker version, uh, even if it's imprecise. And the same thing is true of tithing, tithing stuffed. It's a coercive act. Um, it, it existed in a time and a place for a very specific set of teaching and circumstances, but it is not in uh, part of what was supposed to be the church's model. What was supposed to, to these communities that were being set up, these extended families as they were, were supposed to be voluntary institutions entirely. The funding for what needed to be done was, was voluntary and from the heart. And it was supposed to be sincere. And so it's hard for people to not be begrudging when they're having trouble paying their bills and you're saying that they owe a certain amount. And there are denominations along the way who were especially greedy. They didn't want just 10%. They, they studied the Old Testament very carefully and figure out that there was actually 23 and a third to collect uh, off of people if you, if you looked at it a certain way. Uh, very fundamentally. And, you know, as a result, they really kind of in, in trapped their people and, and were able to live large or do things that wouldn't have been able to do otherwise and get distracted from, from the love and the relationship of the fundamental message. So I'm, I'm, there is absolutely no requirement. You cannot prove to me there is uh, that we are supposed to, uh, that we are required to tithe. It's got to flow from love. And I always think of the family and the, the, the ancient church families that were part of the way that things got done. And in a family, you just give because that's what you do. And that's a huge part of how we need to think of this and metaphorically. Like that's the frame in which we should be considering this. And we need to have a whole episode on this because the Jesus' number one message, his number one message was that he came to bring a kingdom. And I think that's that's the thing that has to be nailed down. And the ecclesia, uh, the called the called out assembly, was the, the ground zero for the government that he was looking to bring. So I, every, I know everybody has heard, "Thy kingdom come," right? <laughs> thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in heaven after the earth goes up in flames and is destroyed. Yeah. So there's a couple of these on this list that are apocalyptic in nature. Um. I grew up in a in a in a, a household that actually believed that there was going to be a rapture, followed by a literal seven year tribulation led by a figure called the Antichrist. This is a very tenuous story, and the the, the one of the most remarkable things about the story is how new it is. It basically is invented in the 1830s, and is expanded on through the rest of the 19th century, up through the time of a guy by the name of Schofield who wrote a Bible. Uh, he had his own Bible commentary or notes that were attached into the scripture. And then uh, uh, that that became a very popular Bible in, in certain segments of Christianity. And, and this story takes off. And in the 1970s, it takes shape as Hal Lindsey's late great planet Earth. And in the uh, late 90s, early aughts, it takes place as uh, Tim LaHaye's Left Behind, which was even made into a movie, a uh, bad movie, not once, but twice. Two actors have basically thrown their careers away on this. And... It's um, it's a scary thing, and it's easy for people outside of it to make fun of this idea. Um, however, it has impacts on our present policy, including our foreign policy, Absolutely. and the way the world works. So, 
you know, ignoring this phenomena or just simply mocking it, it to me is a relatively bad strategy. I think it's something that should be taken very serious, but I would appeal to the people who are, who believe that this is the case, uh, to examine other perspectives, because there are actually a number of different ways to go about doing this. And there are actually ways you can apply something called Occam's razor, which basically suggests that the simplest explanation is the best one. Or Einstein, who said that elegance is in saying everything that needs to be said and nothing more, right? So you try to find those simple statements that kind of boil things down. And there are incredibly much more simple explanations than the idea that the earth has to go through some kind of fiery judgment um, uh, before uh, the kingdom can come. That's not the message that Jesus, for by the way, appears to be presenting. He tends, he seems to be speaking of the kingdom as a present reality. I'm with you on that one because, you know, <laughs> a lot of people say life is hell, life is suffering, <laughs> but life is kingdom too. It, it depends on how you approach it. Yeah. Yeah. So here's an approach. Also, not something Jesus ever said. You've heard it said, love your neighbor which means those with whom you attend church and know in your Christian subculture. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, I think, you know, the, this is one of the ones, the items on the list where it's the most obvious that a it's not in the Bible and it wasn't actually said, and it's not right. And then B you kind of recognize that it actually is the way things are. Um, and I know that there's denominations that have attempted to say, well, we have to separate and not associate with the world in any way, and we shouldn't be out there. And they, they really try to create this isolating bond around people uh, to keep them very enclosed. And, and people feel a sense of yeah. safety and security in those bounds yeah. instead of being out, uh, out in the world. And I don't know whether there's another one that's going to come up that will allow me to address this point. So I'm going to go in a slightly different direction with this one, if you don't mind, and just say, you know, you were created in a, uh, in a certain way and you bring certain talents and desires and abilities into the world. And you have that creative power that's been given to you to make you uniquely built, to make me uniquely Jim and everyone listening to be uniquely who they are. And, uh, you know, if your talent is playing basketball, play basketball. And, and that can be your part of your life ministry. If your talent is, is, is a fish fisherman, right? You like to fish, do that. If you, if your talent is writing, you know, write. If you do painting, paint. If you, uh, if you are really good at plumbing, plumb, you know, or if you're a good engineer, be a great engineer. Like all of these things, the normal living of life is the act of service. That is the ministry that makes things possible. It's the way that we connect with other human beings and, and, and help create the world that needs to be. And so I, I don't stay, you know, this idea, like you'll hear people use this phrase that I find particularly bothersome, full-time Christian service. Well, I mean, isn't everybody that professes faith supposed to be engaged in full-time Christian service? I mean, isn't, shouldn't it bleed into everything? So, you know, I don't think there's anything special about the pastor. In fact, frankly, some of them, uh, they chose that job because they don't want to work. There, there is a few of those kinds of people that's any different or better than the Christian plumber or the Christian engineer or the Christian scientist or the Christian artist, you know what I'm saying? Like I just be the best at that and throw yourself into it and make that your act of worship. In my father's house, there are many rooms, but twice as many in his hell hotel of eternal conscious torment. 
<sighs> why the separation, man? Or why the need? I guess why the need for says it to scare people into going straight or yeah, there definitely is a factor of that, and 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 there also is unfairness to the people who believe this, a sense that judgment is necessary that there are people whose behavior has been so appallingly bad, so evil that they should be punished. They can't be with the rest of us. Um, so I, I can kind of understand where that comes from. Uh, obviously religion uses this to abuse and it is not good news. If, if it were, tr if, if it were true, it's bad news. So here's, I I'm, I'm, you know, still thinking through and researching this issue for myself, but there's one thing I'm confident of in this. And the idea that hell is eternal conscious torment is not backed up in the actual text. Uh, first, there's several different words for hell that are used, uh, like four of them. One of them is the garbage dump outside of the city, as an example. Hades, which means the grave, is another one that gets sometimes translated to hell. These are not necessarily statements of conscious torment. In fact, Hades is almost exactly the opposite. Um, and the idea that it's eternal, the closest we get is that the phrase aeons is used, which basically means a really long time. In, and it's not used commonly. This is an exception, not the rule. So the idea that we're born to be condemned to something that is eternal punishment for something that we did, like, you know, we know the difference, for example, we simple human beings, flawed as we are, know the difference between petty theft and murder. And we judge accordingly. And we're suggesting that God has no concept of this. He's just so uh, unjust that he would treat both crimes the same way. It, it's, it, it, it simply cannot be right if God's primary being is love. I just That statement, it's, this is a really, really powerful thing for me. God is love. It means God equals love. It doesn't say that one of my best traits is I love. One of the things I do really well is love. You know, near the top of my list of character traits is love. No, it literally says it's synonymous. It is. God is love. And it, the idea that you would get eternal conscience torment, and I'm not rationalizing anything. This is what you typically get accused of. And I'm not saying that everybody's going to get to heaven. I don't know whether they are or not. That's not, it's above my pay grade to figure that stuff out. But I'm pretty certain that eternal conscience torment is not actually in there. It has to be derived by people who want that result for whatever psychological reasons they want it. And I come from a background where that's what I was taught. And I'm pretty persuaded that that's not the case. And that's from looking at the passages themselves. Well, I've got and this, by the way, if there's anything that ends up getting if response from believers, it'll be this statement. This is the yeah, thing they the most statement. want to defend. This is the thing they get the most intense about. They really, really seem to want this. There's some drive to want this to be true. And they use, you know, I question Bible-believing churches. That'll cause some trouble. This will cause more from the people who listen this far into the podcast. The, it's also contradictory in so many ways. Even when you add up what Jesus actually said and what got written down. But even within our own society, Jesus said the kingdom of God has come. It's within, the kingdom of God is within you. There was no waiting around for that. Well, not exactly. The good stuff comes after you die. Hang in there. It won't be long. I uh, one time knew a man who was very depressed. And uh, he was going through some terrible life circumstances that, by the way, were character driven. Um, 
In other words, he was reaping what he had sown. And he said to me, I just want to die because that's the point. I'm like, how's that the point? Like, what, what do you mean you want to die? He's like, well, then you go to heaven. He knew that committing suicide was wrong, but he really kind of, his lifestyle and his way of handling things, he really wished it would just happen now. And I, you know, started, that really troubled me. Like, how, how, how does someone who is existing or living in the kingdom, which as you described as a present reality, come to believe that their mission in life is to die just so they can get to the other side? I think there's two things that are simultaneously true. We're supposed to treasure and use the time that we have here. And I think we're supposed to be ready when it's time to go. I don't think we should have any particular fear of death as, as, as much as that could be possible in this relationship. I, I, but I have no, I have no death wish. I have no desire to go racing towards that. I don't see that as the beacon or the hope. And I can't understand why somebody, why is all those pages in there? I mean, why don't we just have a ceremony that basically, you know, you've been converted now it's time to die. You know, I, I just, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to me. And I felt like this tremendous sense of pain for this human being who, who was in this situation. He clearly wasn't living in a kingdom reality. It is a funky place to live when you think about it, mm -hmm. because it's it's like a living, breathing paradox and you can't really escape. And depending on how where you put your faith, you know, you have to make some choices or not and live with the results of that or not. <laughs> I, I have kind of a battlefield metaphor uh, that I've followed that this is, you know, Satan takes he has the three temptations of Christ. And one of those temptations, he says, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world if you'll bow down and worship me. That's one of the things he says. And that's a, to me, that's a big alarm bell. The principalities and powers this is another God is libertarian moment. The principalities and powers, the people who have, who have used coercive force to become so whatever, and they're engaged in a variety of crimes. They're on the, they're on the devil's side. They're, 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 they're doing diabolical things and he's in charge. So that's a really interesting note to me. I, start to think about the fact that you're basically stationed on a battlefield and many veterans will relate to what I'm about to say. You're stationed on a battlefield and you don't want to leave because you're here with your comrades. So in our case, our comrades are family, they're close friends, whatever you begin to build this community of people who are warriors through life together. And you don't want to leave them and you don't want to see them go. Others of your comrades fall and go. You want to stay together as much as possible and that this is this is this battle station that we're at but there comes a point where the assignment ends and you definitely do have to return to home and when that comes you should be ready to embrace that that's kind of how i've chosen to internalize this idea that transition is key both for real life veterans and for those of us who are looking at what happens next after mm -hmm. life let me change gears just a little bit and drag out the old saw and you will know the truth and the truth will make you superior to all the other simpletons who haven't learned Greek or Hebrew. This is related to the theology one that we had earlier. And it's yep. the idea that if you have better knowledge, you're going to be better off. Uh, we recently talked not to, in not too many episodes ago to Dave Brisbane. I I'm, one of the things I'm taken with, we weren't, I don't know whether that got conveyed in this particular podcast, but one of the things in meeting him that moved me was that he definitely was on a path or a journey. And the journey included room for doubt. And 
which is real. It's like, it, you know, there's people who have this insecurity that because they think faith is the opposite of doubt. And I think of faith as trust being in a walk, but there's, there's, there's feedback, there's response there. And I learn, I don't come fully equipped and understanding everything day one. I don't pop out of my mother's womb, knowing how the whole program works and that there's a journey that you go through in life where you figure this stuff out and you always still, no matter how, even if you're getting, you got really good Windex, you still see through the glass darkly, you, but maybe a little bit clearer by day. And I think a lot of the problem with, we, we, this is a Western mindset that we want everything to be here. We want it to be mental. And I'm having a hard time with this because I'm this way. This is completely how I'm wired. I want everything to be mental too. I want to understand how things work and I want to be able to explain them. I want to have rhetoric to do it. But there's a place that you can go where there are no words and there is an internal feeling or an intuition. Uh, there's something deep in the spirit. And, you know, people talk about taking Jesus into their heart, but there's also people know the feeling of having a knot in their stomach. They know a feeling of understanding something or believing something right down to their private parts, right? Like there's an, this idea that there's this knowledge that's not all here. And uh, so uh, again, the word being who he is, as opposed to pages or a book, I'm not disparaging the Greek or Hebrew. Gosh, I've benefited so much from the people who provided that knowledge to me over the years. It is very clarifying and helpful. I'm not disparaging spending a lot of time in the Bible. Again, clarifying, helpful. It's timeless, but not everybody has that ability or that time or ends up on that path. And I don't think their experience is, is necessarily diminished by that. That was another big thing that hit me when I sat there in a Christian church and heard these words, don't get it twisted. You can't trust yourself. God alone can fix it. Never forget how inadequate and powerless you are on your own, Bill. And I thought to myself, this is not the Jesus that I met. So it's interesting because you can't trust yourself. God alone can fix it. Um, is tied to this concept of original sin. And so there's the part where Jim Palmer does a really good job of like using what actually is in there and is said. And then he adds on the implication that tends to come along with this, which is never forget how inadequate and powerless you are on your own. Okay. The point of the whole thing isn't, gee, you know, we're not worthy. We're not worthy. We're not worthy. That's not the point of the whole thing. There's a point inside each of us. There's a part of you right now that you don't have, you don't have the confidence to share with the world. You would keep hidden. There's the deep, the dark secrets. There's the depression. There's the feelings of inadequacy that you don't measure up that exists in, in most of us that we keep pressed down. We find activities, we find drugs, we find whatever it is that we have to do to press that down. And uh, this is so much more profound and beautiful than the, than the way this is phrased in the, the way you just phrased this and the way that Jim Palmer's managed to kind of cast, I think accurately what people believe that in that muck, that's exactly where Jesus came down, 
like God himself came down in human form and went straight to that point, died the worst possible death under the most uh, unjust circumstances, and then went into Hades to free the prisoners. Like there is this sense that he's coming right down into the deepest, darkest parts of us and saying, hey, I'm right here. And when you're ready for the light, I want to take you uh, into the relationship that I have with my father. It's going to change your life. It's going to transform you. And your dependencies are no longer going to be based on your activity level or your drugs or whatever else it is that you're doing to kind of cover up and satisfy that stuff. And that's the gospel. And it's going to turn out that all the, that you have things that you do because I made you and I value you. You're one of my kids. Like there's going to be things that you do that I want to see you flourish in the world and help spread my blessings to other people. I want to use you as a channel to make, to, to help expand happiness and harmony and prosperity. Let's talk about those things you do because one the Jim's next quote has come to me, all who are weary and burdened. And I will give you a checklist of things to do and not do in order to remain in God's favor. <laughs> so almost everybody that professes Christianity recognizes that it is not a religion of works. There are people who aren't Christians that don't understand this. And the, there has been so much emphasis on moralism and legalism over the years that one could easily get confused from the outside looking in at it. But the people that are actually sitting in the pews, uh, they, they know it's not a religion of works. Um, so the checklist thing, the idea, this kind of contradicts the one that's previous, by the way. And it's, it's interesting how these things can simultaneously coexist. Right. I'm unworthy. I can't do it on my own. But here's a checklist of things I could do. Um, and they feel this sense of performance. So it has to do with making sure you go to church, you're tithing, you're reading your Bible, you're engaged in some kind of a service and so forth. Now, these are all things, by the way, that can be very positive in your life. But they are things. They are works. And it, one of the things that I have learned since the time that I've left and become a done myself is that who I am and what I do is who I was made to be. Like I have certain traits and abilities and gifts. And when I'm doing those things, I, I'm kind of, it's, it's almost, there's moments where I feel like really connected, really complete, really, you know, part of something important. And I consider those God moments. Like I, 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 I believe that he wants me to, to take what he's given me as a steward and use those things. And, but that doesn't mean that I'm somehow or other better or I've earned his favor. I'm not in the game of earning his favor. I couldn't possibly do it. He's already come to me. It's not me going to him. It's him coming to me. And it's just me kind of embracing that. That's, that's where this, where the, the heart of this thing lies. Well, let me up in that apple cart real quick. God accepts me and he accepts me in you. But don't think this means God actually accepts and approves of you as you are. You're nothing without me. This is a tough one, Jim. No. So there's this, this uh, way of presenting the gospel uh, called the four spiritual laws. Or sometimes people simplify it to the ABCs. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe that Jesus is God and came and died for your sins. Confess that you are a sinner and you want him to take over. So it becomes a process. Other people do the same thing in baptism or communion, uh, keeping up with certain sacraments. But there, there's they believe that there's this constant separation that they have to meet. And uh, 
that's not good news. You can't, it's very hard to call that gospel and to begin with. And it's not really the position that's being presented. We we made a, a conscious decision here to call this show Grace Arky because what grace is, is it's favor, that it's power that we didn't deserve. We didn't do anything to earn. In fact, we probably did something bad and still got the favor anyway. And so we all have this and God's present and looking to reach out to every one of us. John 3.16, read correctly, says that God loved the world, and that's why he gave his son. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. There is a, uh, an, uh, God is, is, is non-coercively reaching back out and trying to draw humanity back to him through, an act of, through acts of extreme love. And, um, this, it's not about you, you're a big, bad failure and the, how much, how much mental health, how many mental health issues are we dealing with time immemorial, multi-generational right up to the present day because of this belief that somehow or other we're wicked, we're bad, we're, we're garbage, we're junk. Um, this was the view of the pagans that surrounded them. This is this is Platonic thinking. This was not the Hebrew. When you had Dave on, he talked about the Hebrew Jesus. Part of the problem with that is they had this separation where the things that were above, the things that were beyond, the enlightened things were better, these were good, and the physical base things were actually kind of rotten and yucky. And this is not <laughs> this is not the Hebrew story. This is not what Jesus would have come and taught and understood as a Hebrew man. So I don't know. I, have, I I think this is actually really disturbing with profound, profoundly bad psychological, uh, psychosocial, relational difficulties attached to it that come down over generations and, and exist in our present time. It's it's really it's toxic to think that to think this way, that you suddenly have to you have to keep trying to get God's approval. This next one kind of gets me in the gut. He appeared to his disciples over a period of 40 days and spoke about how to incorporate his life and teachings as a 501c3 and go into all the earth and build megachurches in his name. Uh, so a 501c3 I'm intimately familiar with because the sponsor of our show, the Zero Aggression Project, zeroaggressionproject.org is a 501c3 and I am its co-creator. And a 501c3 is a nonprofit charitable organization. Uh, they, they exist actually in two different forms. They can be private foundations or public charities. Uh, Zero Aggression Project happens to be a public charity. And then there's a third kind of hybrid version of these things uh, called churches. Uh, they can also exist slightly elsewhere in the US tax code. But almost all of them choose to be 501c3 organizations because with that package, the government says to you, you do not have to pay taxes on your earnings. You can accept donations from the public. You can accept grants of support and you can take those things and you can operate your enterprise and you don't have to pay taxes on it. And this is a huge, huge benefit. Further, the people who make the contributions to you will also be able to claim a deduction if they itemize on their taxes. So they have more incentive to give you more. So it's a win on both sides. It's a win expense-wise. It's a win in terms of bringing income in. 
And we extend this uh, at, at the federal level. This is extended because charitable enterprises do a lot of social good, can do a lot of social good. And on balance, I think do. What ends up happening is that there's certain strings that come attached to that. And one of the things it does to the church enterprise that's probably the worst is it changes the essential nature of the thing from um, a from a family or a relational enterprise into a business that is providing that is meeting certain um, entertainment um, and relational social club uh, and other types of demands that are not necessary. They're not essential. But because of the fact that you have to figure out how to pay the bills, the, because of the fact you have to figure out how to fill, file the forms, you necessarily begin to become oriented towards things that are not primary. So I say commonly what happens in these cases, the three primary things are buildings, budgets, and butts and the seats. And this is part of the essential nature of these 501c3 enterprises, especially the ones that are oriented to becoming mega churches who go one step further and say, we need to figure out how to cast the message. We have to, we and all of our genius have to figure out how to improve upon the gospel so that we can bring it to people in a way that they're going to really crave it. They're going to want it. They're going to want it so much that they're going to show up to our services and they're going to give to the, to our collective pot and help expand what it is that we're doing, which is essentially how every business in, in the country runs. They all think about customers. A church is not a collection of customers and pastors are not providers of a service. Uh, they're supposed to be shepherds in relation with other people, helping them through their journey. Um, so I, I think this, this, there's something about the 501c3 structure that is inherently corrupting. And by the way, the government didn't leave this untouched. They said, you know what? There's certain topics you can't cover and there's new threats on the horizon as to what you can or cannot say because you've taken on this, this, this privilege that we have given you. And, uh, so I, I'm, I think it's a, a dangerous place to go. It sells out. There you go. It sells That's out. a really good way of summing it up. It's it, 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 it promotes, I'm not saying it necessarily happened in every case, but I, I will say I, it promotes selling out. It creates that greased incentive to sell out. And to lengthen the time, because the more you can string it along, you know, the bigger you can grow. Yeah. If Jesus were to come tomorrow, I'd put all the churches out of business. At least the no. Churches. Are you sure? Are you sure? If you came tomorrow, are you sure they still wouldn't be there running businesses? I, I just, you know, I kind of, you know, we have the these, uh, we have Jesus actually told a parable where there were people who said, I did these great things in your name and they don't, they're not in the club. And then they're called goats. And there are other people who are sheep who had no idea. Like, we didn't know we did it. When did we do it? And he said, well, you did it when you took care of the least of these. I mean, that that has that's one of those things that has a real impact on me. Like, which which camp am I in? Am I a sheep or a goat, right? Who gets accepted? Who gets, who's who's out? Seems to have a whole lot more to do with uh, how the types of relationships that we are maintaining with God and then with each other. So the final one here, and this is a very short one. I'll be back to fix it. As he's ascending, this is what he says. Hey, yeah. I'll be back to fix it. Got to go right now. Don't go away. Check, be here all check week. in with you later. 
Yeah. The, the kingdom, we've said this before, was a present reality. And it's a really important thing. We're going to have to have a whole episode about this at some point very soon. I really, it's something I've wanted to discuss, but I just don't have all my ducks lined up to explain it the way I want to explain it. Um, I, 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 it is, it matters that we, that we live in a time where we recognize that we have a mission, that we have something to do. And, and for me, Bill, part of that mission is sitting here and laying out a vision that does not put people in bondage, but rather liberates them so that they can liberate so that we can actually experience the full benefits of grace, not just carry it out and live it, but also experience it coming back to us uh, as opposed to the rivalry and the contention and the conflict that we exist in, where we think we have to figure out how to get on top and live at the expense of others. And I only, I've increasingly come to think that, you know, the fixing it part is really about living uh, a, a life that is hallmarked by grace and love. I got to ask you for the, for the final wrap on this. What's your belief? Can we do this? Um, <laughs> so it's going to sound like I'm saying something that was in that list. But I, I tend to believe not necessarily on our own. I believe that this is something that is done first in relationship with Christ. Um, but definitely, uh, regardless of where you're at on that right now, in relationship with one another, we have to have a home base or a community. It, it, to the degree that it is possible over time to bring this show to more people, and have more people engaged in this dialogue with us. And then maybe even carrying out and doing their own shows on this subject or, or doing some other work uh, in other settings, uh, maybe even their own communities to take this message out there. That to me is where the, the real work lies, but we don't, we don't wanna do it alone. I'm, I'm blessed that I'm able to come and discuss things with you. I, I have other friends dear in my life who I'm able to come and I'm able to have these deep conversations of life. I know also that if I'm in trouble, I can pick up the phone and call them. And I'm prepared to do that for them as well, to be there on the other end of the line waiting to help. And it's these things that enable me to then be more at peace and relaxed. And I, I have increasingly, uh, this has been a journey that I've been on for a number of years, uh, but this idea that, that I have to protect my ego I have to ensure that I'm going to get the credit for things because I don't measure up if I don't. I, I want as much as possible, as much as is humanly possible while I'm walking this journey to keep seeing that diminish so that I am in a position where I am fully effective and at peace myself. And I want that for anybody who is willing to take up that same cross and, and do that same thing. And I'm hopeful that as even as we're talking about the heavy social issues or the transient political issues, that we find ways to bring understanding that is beyond uh, simple legalistic judgment and more about, hey, dude, what's your deal? What motivated you? Why did you do what you just did? How can, how can I help you uh, be on a better path where you too can find peace? That's what I think we needed to here at Grace Arkey. So is it possible? Well, yes, of course. As some people like to say, they read the end of the book and they know who wins. 
um, to me, this is the direction that history is bending towards. It is bending. You know, Jesus is alpha, not only alpha creator, he's also omega. He's the end. And that's what I believe is, is, is the direction we're going.